0: aunts and uncles, anyone in need. Join us now to learn more about estate planning essentials with Michael Cohen and co-host Don Crawford Jr. Here now are Michael and Don. I faced it all,
1: and I stood tall,
0: and did it my
1: way. And I am Don Crawford Jr., and I'm sitting with Dallas estate planning attorney Michael Cohen, the co-host of this program, and we are here invariably committed to honestly and earnestly effort to protect your family, your assets, and you. And I say, hello, Michael Cohen. How are you, sir?
2: Doing well, Don. How about yourself? And happy holidays.
1: Happy holidays to you, too. Thank you for your time, uh, for that greeting, um, for the education you've been giving us the last five or ten years on air, and the education you're about to give us. And that issue, that topic today, is about trusts and questions that you're being asked about trusts and how beneficial they can be for our listeners. So let's start with that, Michael.
2: Yeah, Don, I thought that people should know that trust could be used in various ways for various different protections. It's not just one size fits all. And I thought maybe a few different illustrations of what I saw this week on how we use different types of trust and trust within trust would be an illustration of how everybody's situation is different and you can protect your family the way you would like under your own terms and conditions if that's what your goal is. Now, I'll first mention what a... I'm gonna talk about a revocable trust just because it's a basic thing and most people probably think of trust as a revocable trust. A revocable trust is a trust that you could always revoke or amend as long as you have mental capacity as long as you don't die Uh, you can't revoke uh, the trust after you die that's why uh, by the way that's the reason why if let's say you're single and you had a revocable trust when you're single and you have a revocable trust it uses your social security number when you open up an account because you could always revoke or amend so the irs is you're in total control so therefore it's yours of course, after you die, you can't make changes, so that at that point, a revocable trust becomes an irrevocable trust, and at that point, you need a tax ID number. Well, um, which you get, it's very simple to get from the IRS. Well, I, I, so most pe- a lot of people use revocable trust for various reasons, like avoidance of probate is probably the number one reason. Some people think, well, I'll have a trust just because... Um, if I have a will and I have a lot of different beneficiaries and I have to give notice to a whole bunch of beneficiaries and that's a lot of extra time and effort. And so I just want to have a trust so I don't have as much uh, responsibilities and, um, that are required under the laws if you have a will as far as notice, et cetera. Some people want a trust because unlike a will, uh, there's privacy. Uh, you know, unlike a will, your will would be a matter of public record. Uh, your will, if you have an inventory, that could be a public record as well, whereas on a trust, it's private. You don't have anything that people see. You don't have to go by the state's laws or make your own laws. Um, some people have an ongoing business, and so they want not to have the delays of probate. Or maybe they have property in another state, so they don't want to have to probate in Texas and have an ancillary probate in another state. So those are some of the general reasons uh, what a revocable living trust, usually the person who sets up the trust is called the grantor. They're actually oftentimes not only the grantor, the one who sets up the trust, but they're also the trustee of their own assets, and they're the beneficiaries of their assets. Or the sole usually the sole beneficiary, but if you're married, of course, uh, maybe you could do things differently. But you, most times, people are just uh, benefit themselves during their lifetime, and then upon death, then it goes the way they want, similar mm-hmm. to a will in that respect. All right, so that's the basics on what a trust generally is, but there could be trust within a trust. So, for example, um, I have a married couple. The, uh, one spouse has a child from a prior marriage. Um, the other spouse is concerned about remarriage and wants to make sure that their kids get the funds after they uh, both die and not going to either a new spouse or to somebody other than their kids. All right. So, so actually there's two different aspects to it. Uh, when can a trust be revoked? Now, remember I told you, um, you know, when we were talking about a single person, that as long as you have mental capacity and you haven't died, you can always make changes. Well, similarly here, if you have a married couple, remember, Texas is a community property state. So unlike some states, generally when you have a married couple in Texas, uh, you usually use one trust. So the husband and wife create the trust together. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, Um, You know, sometimes people have a separate property, they just want to have their own things separate, and maybe they have a pre- or post-nuptial agreement that reflects whatever their desires are. But if they don't, generally they have a joint trust. Now, you could say, by the way, in the trust that either if you had separate property that remains the same separate property that it was uh, prior to putting the asset in the trust, so that if there was a divorce, Um, there would be um, not considered to be a gift and lose that separate property status. Well, anyway, um, so let's say in this case they were concerned about a remarriage. So after the death of the first spouse, you could divide the assets, let's say it was all community property, into two. There would be one half would go into a trust that becomes irrevocable with the deceased spouse's money, and or assets and the other trust, the other part remains the same that they could revoke or amend their part. So, generally, a lot of times, if you're uh, married and let's say there was children all the same marriage, uh, there's uh, then there's less concern that there'll be a need to change or that the surviving spouse will take care of the kids, as they say. But when you're it's a second marriage, it's almost always a Red flag that their people are concerned, you know, because probably over half the marriage is in divorce in the United States. So there's a lot of concern about remarriage um, for a lot of people. So if there was, then you would say half assets, you know, your half, you could do with it what you want, but my half, it has to go in a trust. You could be the, you, the surviving spouse, could be the beneficiary unless you remarry. Now, how can you define remarriage? It doesn't have to be actual the marriage ceremony. It could be cohabitation for one night, and so you could define the uh, what remarriage is, and different powers would be uh, would be removed upon remarriage, and under that definition, cohabitation for one night. So, in other words, if you were the trustee, the trust uh, of the one that was uh, the trust within the trust, that is. Uh, regarding the assets from the deceased spouse, maybe you're no longer that trustee, or maybe you're a co-trustee. The ability to make uh, changes to whoever the beneficiaries are that you may have had this power over uh, is uh, can't be done, or the power to change who the trustees might be and who might be a new trustee or who could appoint a new trustee. Or if you have a trust advisor to be able to make changes, even if you lack capacity, you lose the power to change who that trust advisor or protector might be. It like gets kind of complicated, but the bottom line is, there's different things that you can remove. The powers that you grant your surviving spouse can be changed upon remarriage by having a definition and creating a second trust within the trust. And you can have a trust within the will also, or something like that. But of course, with a trust, Trust is ongoing, whereas on a will, this is just what happens when you die. So that's why it doesn't really, you know, fit the bill on a will as much. Um, okay, so that's one thing is is how you protect somebody on a remarriage. Okay. Let's say somebody was single and they had no assets at all except for their home. All right. First of all, did you have any questions on that? I'm sorry. No,
1: I, I appreciate that education very much, but I, I like to second topic or or demographic we're going to talk about right now, because there are lots of people out there who are single who own a home.
2: Yeah. So here's the second situation. The second situation is the person only asset they had is a home. So why would I need a trust if the only asset I have is a home? Now, this person now is unfortunately, now we're getting into the elder law side here. So we're not only just talking about estate planning like we did on the first Mm -hmm. example, but now we're going to talk about a little bit about Medicaid. And, and a trust. So the first thing you ought to know is on a home, it does not count as an asset for Medicaid. However, the state, after is usually, if the equity value is under 636000 uh, as we talked about on the show a few weeks ago as of January 1st. Um, so the house doesn't count as an asset, but the government has a right to go after the home after death to the extent that benefits were advanced. So if somebody had to go in a nursing home, they Paid out, the government paid out $200,000, and they can make a claim for $200,000 against the home to get reimbursed after the Medicaid recipient dies. They always go after things that go like a home or a car if it goes by a will or by intestacy. That means if you have nothing at all, if you have no will at all. Um, so, in that situation, so we have to do what's often called a ladybird deed, or sometimes people do a transfer on death deed, because that way it doesn't go by will, it goes by deed at death. And the person who signs the deed is in total control during their life, so there's no transfer penalty. Medicaid has a five-year look-back period, but if you're in total control of your asset, there's no trust transfer penalty. It just goes to the person on death. But in this case, the only child is a drug addict, so if they're a drug addict, do you want the asset to go directly to a drug addict who might right. sell the assets, whatever they may be, and just spend the money on drugs? And so so instead of um, having a Lady Bird D go directly to the drug-addicted child, the house could go to uh, a trust. Remember, Lady Bird D avoids estate recovery. By the way, if you put a home into a trust, this is one example uh, if you put a home into a trust during lifetime, uh, under Medicaid rules, generally a trust is not the good idea, not a revocable trust at least, because it counts as a resource. Um, so you don't put the home in the trust during life you, with the ladybird deed or a transfer on death deed. It goes to the trust after you die. Thus, it avoids Medicaid estate recovery. But then when we have that trust We have that drug-addicted son, so we'll have a trust within the trust. The trust within the trust, we give whoever the trustee of that trust is the discretion to make payments for the child in any way that the the one who wants it to be done, done. In other words, it could be sole discretion of the trustee, or it could be a certain dollar amount, or it could be for their health education, maintenance support, or it could be a certain percentage. Whatever way the person wants to protect their child, To have that protection done, that's the way it could be done. It doesn't have to be just real quickly. It doesn't have to be just a drug-addicted issue. Mm -hmm. It could be that somebody is disabled. It could be somebody has a creditor issue. It could be that somebody has uh, has a spendthrift. Uh, It could be that their child child that's a beneficiary is having marital problems. There's lots of different types of trust you could have within the trust to protect your beneficiaries the way and desires that you want.
1: I think it's great. Uh, trust within a trust makes perfect sense. Is that typical uh, for attorneys to offer that concept?
2: Well, I think the way I look at it, there are some things that are basic. Usually the most basic things for most people, whether it be a will or a trust, is if you had somebody who's a minor. Mm. So, for example, we call it an understated age beneficiary, not just if they're a minor, because you might reach the age of majority, you majority know, earlier than when you really mature. Right. And so some people might say, oh, yeah, they're 20 years old, but are they really mature? Can they handle assets? They might spend that money on that red sports car, uh, which is something that you and I both want to do. But that's a different story. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, the the bottom line is, is that you could say, oh, so we're doing one now for somebody. You said, okay, half to somebody at age 25 and half at age 30 or whatever way you want to do it. So until they mature, there could be distributions for health, education, maintenance, and support. That's pretty standard. That is pretty standard. Um, We also, even in just about every will or trust we do, we have a contingent disability trust. Now, that's a little bit different because the elder law world is a little bit different than the uh, typical estate planning world because the elder law attorney's perspective is that 30% of Americans become disabled at some point in their life. So there there's been cases where people who failed to, uh, attorneys who failed to recognize that had a lot of issues later on. So the elder law attorney very well, uh, would, I would think, I would hope, would always have a contingent disability trust in there if some beneficiary is disabled. So, so the answer is most people have underage trust. Uh, most people probably don't have disability trust. Uh, but the other trust that we've been talking about, well, it's, you know, it just depends on the situation, whether people were thinking about it, and they want to protect their uh, beneficiaries. Uh, they want to protect their family from, in this case, themselves, because the drug-addicted child, as we know, probably would just spend the money as soon as they got it,
1: even right. if it
2: was selling the house or whatever.
1: Yeah. So I'm the constant cynic, Michael, uh, at times too much, because I just, I just want the truth, and sometimes I'm... I'm doubting Thomas, and I'm not sure what I'm hearing, what I'm reading, et cetera, like a lot of us are or should be. Um, And I know that what you uh, present to us each and every time we do this program or when you and I are just talking on the phone or in person, that I'm getting the truth. And the audience may not be. I don't know. Um, Through you, they are when it comes to estate planning and government benefits and assistance and the like. And if they have any doubts, if they have any concerns, any questions about their estate plan or government assistance, they should attend your next workshop, which is online, which is great and very convenient for people. And that is on Saturday, January the 8th at 10 o'clock in the morning. And it is a Zoom workshop, and it talks about estate planning essentials or government assistance. It allows each individual that attends, again, via Zoom, so they could be sitting on their couch or... Or in their bedroom, wherever they want to, and ask Michael a question about those topics. And he's been doing these for years, so they're very successful. They're very rewarding. And when the two hours is up, and they're free, of course, you'll say to yourself, I'm really glad I sat in on that. So, Michael, tell us more about the workshops.
2: Yeah, it's a free estate planning essentials workshop. We ask people what they want to know. And they, and every workshop's different because the questions are different. And you'll learn something not only from whatever questions you might have, but you'll learn something from the questions that other people might have that you might not have thought about. So uh, we do have a presentation, but uh, generally on estate planning and Medicaid, because those are some of the more common things people ask. Do I need a will? Do I need a trust? Do I need a power of attorney? Things like that. It's simple. But then it gets into other things uh, that people are interested in or maybe not as common. And, of course, we ask people what they want to know. It could be anything from, is there any new laws that might affect me? Is it uh, what are something that's going to happen in 2022? Uh, How are things different than they are now? Uh, There could be lots of different types of questions and lots of different, um, and every workshop's different as a result. Uh, To attend the free estate planning essentials workshop, and if you do go to that free estate planning essentials workshop, You also get a one-hour free vision meeting, but only if you go to the Estate Planning Essentials Workshop. All you have to do is call 214-720-0102. That's 214-720-0102. Or sign up online at DallasElderLawyer.com. That's DallasElderLawyer.com. So that means that you would get basically three three hours, of, you know, legal education with no obligation. You don't have to do anything. You get some education. If you uh, we'll look at whatever estate planning dockets you might have. Uh, uh, if you do go to that vision meeting, and there's certainly not even an obligation to do that, but it is free. Uh, and if you do nothing, that's okay. It's okay. we will part friends. You just get an education on what questions you might be asking yourself to make sure that your
1: loved ones are protected the way you desire. Excellent. Saturday, January the 8th at 10 o'clock is the workshop. Sign up for it as soon as possible. Uh, Michael, we got about six minutes left or so. What else can you tell us about how rewarding trust can be?
2: Okay. So I'm going to tell you another type of thing, which we've never done before. That was another one from this week. So all these things are actually scenarios from this week. Um, This one, the, 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 husband, wife, have a disabled child. You remember we just mentioned that it doesn't have to be a drug addict. Mm-hmm. And they wanted their IRA to go to the um, – there's a pool what's called a pool trust. A pool trust is like a big special needs trust that's administered by a professional trustee at a discounted rate. So they – but the problem is at that particular – uh, pool trust company. There's about three or four of them in Texas that are pool trust. Um, there's certain restri- in certain restrictions. This is allowed by federal law, um, but it, and which what, what is again, it's a like a big special needs trust. A special needs trust is like a disability trust. Uh, there's four different types that are used by the Arc of Texas in this case. Uh, those that are set up by the, somebody other than the beneficiary, and then there's those who are the, the beneficiaries, the one that sets it up themselves. Anyway, um, in this case, uh, that particular pool trust uh, does not accept anything but cash. Some different pool trust companies accept real estate. And if you have an IRA and you name the uh, pool trust as a beneficiary, then it could be cash, but the tax could be significant. So we say, how can we get the tax to be less um, and still benefit the disabled child? All right. So as you may know, special needs trust that we talked, to, you know, when the Secure Act passed a couple years ago, there were certain exceptions to the law. Secure Act, most people realize maybe realize that an IRA, when it goes to the kids, unless the kids are either a minor or if they're disabled or chronically ill, then they now have to take it out within 10 years. So the old inherited IRA rules for children uh, are really no longer applicable. Uh, It's a different set of rules because the government wants their tax dollars quicker. Um, so, So it would have had to have gone out normally within 10 years. But remember, in this case, their child is disabled. So if we have, instead of having the Trust company have language where the retirement account goes to the special needs trust. First of all, with proper language, it could be um, stretched out over the life expectancy of the disabled child. Well, that stretch means an awful lot because the money could grow tax deferred. But we didn't want it to be too much of a tax situation if you take out more than out of that trust more than. Uh, let's say, uh, $13,000 to 14000 a year, then the income tax um, is taxed at a higher rate, uh, 37% uh, at the present time. So what we said was, okay, we want cash, school trust company will have the IRA go to a special needs trust within the trust, parents set up this uh, revocable trust, uh, or it could be an irrevocable trust for that matter, but there's a contingent special needs trust for child. The IRA beneficiary is going to be that special needs trust. However, you're going to also have to have the ability to accumulate so that there would not be distributions directly to the um, beneficiary because if there was distributions uh, to the beneficiary, then uh, then that would be a problem because that usually Medicaid's means tested, and that would jeopardize Medicaid. So okay. they have the right to accumulate inside the trust and then make the distributions for something other than uh, the things that Medicaid doesn't cover, which might include the pool trust. Thus they got money cash to the pool trust company, they stretched out the money, didn't lose public benefits, and protected their disabled child. So that's why I'm saying you can use trust in lots of different ways. That's a different that's a very unusual situation. But you could use trust in many different ways. It's very flexible. It could be that you say, I want a certain amount to go to a child uh, each month. You could have it, you know, there's different patterns that you could do. And everything you do, it's just a matter of what's important to you and how you want to protect your family the way you want under your terms and conditions. So I guess that might
1: be a good New Year's resolution for some is protecting their family for the coming year. (laughs) No, I don't guess. Uh, It surely is. And pardon the truism, but you can trust trusts. They're outstanding vehicles to get you where you want to be while you're alive and after you passed away. And Michael is perfect to set them up for you. And that is why you need to attend his next workshop. That, again, is online via Zoom on Saturday, January the 8th at 10 o'clock in the morning. To sign up, go to DallasElderLawyer.com, DallasElderLawyer.com com, or dial 214-720-0102, 214-720-0102. My Dallas elder lawyer and should be yours, Michael Cohen, we thank you for your time today, sir. Thank you, Don,
2: and happy holidays again. The Record
1: Show.